Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're an athlete or you just love sports, And you want to learn about how to translate what you've learned on the court, the pitch, or the field into careers you'll love, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has done just that. He played three division sports, division one sports at Brown University, and leveraged that experience in addition to what he learned in the classroom into successful careers in finance strategic business consulting, and sports marketing. But before I introduce you to David Kotowski, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that features tips, insights, and job-seeking strategies gleaned from the professionals like David who are actually working in the industries that most interest you. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is David Kotowski, the CEO and founder of the Sports Business Networks, also known as SBN. SBN is a network of current and former athletes who've come together to help one another be the best they can be. David is also the founder and president of Elevate Sports and Marketing, LLC, a consulting firm focused on sports and entertainment. David started his professional journey in finance, working as a government bond and interest rate swap specialist at the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. And after a couple of years there, moved on to Merrill Lynch as a vice president and a senior financial consultant. David, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am caffeinated and I have my coffee with me, so I'm always ready to go. What do you guys drink in the Katowski household? Black. Yeah, but black what kind mother. of black? What? That's it. Pacific Bold. Oh, What is that? Is that something you get in the grocery store or do you order it? I actually get it from Costco. Okay. uh, That's my favorite brand, Pacific Bold. Very nice. I am all about the bold. I I cannot drink the lightly roasted or some of these more citrusy flavored coffees. I want to be able to like put my knife in it and have it stand up. There you go. So, David, I want our listeners to know that you and I first got to know one another a couple of months back through your weekly show on SBN, the speaker series. 
and I was fortunate enough to be a guest on it. And what I thought would be kind of fun for us to do, David, is to begin our caffeinated chat today by flashing back a few years to when you were in school, when you were an undergrad, because so much of what you have achieved over the years came about because of the incredible success that you had as a student athlete who received the Thomas Watson Jr. Scholarship. Can you share with our listeners what that scholarship is, how you got it, and we'll go from there. Sure. Well, the Thomas Watson Scholarship is one of the most prestigious scholarships that that Brown offers. It's academic only. The Ivy League doesn't offer any athletic scholarships, so it's academic only. And I was very lucky. I had actually originally committed to attend West Point to play football and to play lacrosse at West Point. And I went on my last recruiting trip to Brown and I absolutely fell in love with the school and I fell in love with the people. It was the team that was staying with my recruiting trip and meeting a bunch of people. There were a bunch of people. I'm originally from Long Island. There are a lot of Long Islanders on the team and it was just a great fit for me. And so I, I made my decision that I was going to switch. And I come from a very blue collar family. My mom raised six kids on her own. And when I called her from the Providence train station to tell her about my trip and that I was heading home, she asked me how it was. And I said, it was great. And I said, mom, I'm going to go to Brown. And she famously said back to me, Brown, it doesn't even sound like a good school. She had no (laughs) idea. She wanted me to go to West Point. And when I came home that night and I made it back home on the train from Providence, My mom was getting ready for work. She worked the 11 to 7 shift at night and she was in tears. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, West Point was free to us and you were going to go to college for free. I don't have any money to send you to Brown. So I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, we'll figure it out. And I sat there and and came up with a game plan. My game plan that I came up with was I was going to take a a year off from school and I was going to work for a year and take a gap year. And just I just work and whatever money I made would go towards education. So I reached out to my coach at the time to talk to him about my situation that we couldn't afford Brown. And he said, well, what about financial aid? And I didn't even know what financial aid was. Uh, No one in my family had ever gone to college. So we had no idea. So we applied for financial aid. I ended up winning the, the Watson scholarship. And with that, I wrote him a two page handwritten thank you note to thank him for the scholarship, because this was dramatically going to change my life. And that two-page thank you note created a lifelong relationship that I had with Mr. Watson until he died. He wanted to meet me. So he met me at Brown. He was on the board of trustees for Brown. His family had given over $100 million to Brown. The Watson Science Library, where I I started out as a bio pre-med major, I spent a lot of time in there. And this was the type of person. Uh, Thomas Watson Jr. was, was the CEO and chairman of IBM at the time. And this is who would give me my scholarship. And what did that relationship that you developed with Mr. Watson end up doing for you in the early years? It was my first mentor. It was clearly my first mentor that I had. I had some great coaches and and things like that, but I never had a mentor who really took an interest in me like Watson had done. He wanted me to stay in touch with him. He wanted me to keep him up to date on things that I was doing and all things like that. And what was interesting is, I wasn't very unsure of what I was going to do after college. And I just didn't know. While my friends might have been doing internships and working on at Wall Street firms during the summer, I was working on the back of a garbage truck, cleaning pools or working construction. That was the background that I grew up in. And, and that's what I knew. So coming out of college, 
I was thinking maybe I go work for IBM. And Mr. Watson told me, don't apply to IBM because they're going to find out that you won the Watson scholarship and they're going to think that they have to give you a job there. And, and I said, well, isn't that the whole idea of networking? And, and he said, I want you to make this on your own. I didn't know what I really wanted to do. I had an opportunity to come back to Brown and coach. My former coach offered me a job coaching on his staff for $9,000 a year. My high school that I went to, I went to Chaminade High School in Long Island, which is a very prestigious all boys Catholic high school. They offered me a job teaching and coaching for $12,000 a year. Even though I had won a scholarship, I still had loans. I had student loans I needed to get paid back. So I needed something where I was going to make money. And that's where I decided to look and go to Wall okay. Street. All right. We're going to get to that in just a bit. But first, I want to ask you about the sports that you played at Brown. Sure. As I mentioned in the introduction, you played three Division I sports. What were they and what did sports mean to you as a young guy? Sports were everything. I grew up in a, uh, I had a very tough upbringing. I had grew up in a very abusive family situation. My dad moved out when I was seven. So sports and school were my places of, that was my only place that I would want to be. I didn't want to be in my house. I wanted to be either on the field or in a classroom. And those are the two constants that I always had. I was always a really good student and I was always really good in sports. So sports were just a, a crucial part of my life and part of my upbringing. It was where I got to release all the energy that I had built up. I got to showcase what I was able to do on the field and I got to showcase what I was able to do in the classroom. So when I was thinking about colleges, I knew that I wanted to play two sports. I knew I wanted to play football. I knew I wanted to play lacrosse. Lacrosse was my number one sport. I had been recruited for, for both at Brown and I was excited to come there and, and play two sports. And then my freshman year, they had some injuries at the upper weights in wrestling. And that's why I wrestled in high school with the upper weight classes, heavyweight and things like that. So they asked me to come out for the wrestling team. My freshman year, I went and I was just a practice player on the team, never competed in any matches. I just practiced with the team. And then sophomore year, I was a full member of the team and ended up wrestling and, and played three sports. Did you ever think maybe even in, in the lacrosse, which you said was your best sport, that you'd go into the pros? No, because I mean, back then there weren't really, the, the pro lacrosse was a, a small league. We really didn't think about it. The better league that everyone was playing in was there was a post-collegiate league where they had teams that were sponsored by different, different organizations and you played to a national championship. So all of the best players were playing in that league until professional lacrosse was created. And then there were leagues to play in. So I never really had aspirations of playing professional lacrosse, but I ended up playing in both the indoor and outdoor professional leagues. I played for the New York Saints in the indoor professional lacrosse, and I played for the Bridgeport Barrage in outdoor. Oh, fantastic. Dave, what do you think are the lesser known windfalls of playing collegiate sports, whether it's division one, two, three, or even club sports? You know what? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned club sports because the kids who play club sports, they're just as dedicated as the kids who are playing division one. You might not have all of the things that you have to do for division one, the weight room and things like that, but those kids are just as dedicated. So I'm glad you mentioned them, but the things that you learn in sports, whether it's on the wrestling mat, on the lacrosse field or on the football field or the hockey rink, it doesn't matter. It's part of that team dynamic that you learn at an early stage. 
how to be a team player, how to be coachable, how to be on time, how to be resilient. All of the things that you learn on those respective fields are things that you're going to take into your life and they're going to encompass everything you do, especially in business. And it's that competitive fire where you want to win, you want to score that goal, you want to make a great play. Well, it's those same things that you want to do in the corporate environment. Well, speaking of that fire (laughs) that you had in your belly when you graduated from Brown, you said you went to Wall Street. What was your first job and how did you get it? I got my first job actually through a a Brown connection, through networking. A good friend of mine, Greg Rogers, told me about an opening that he had heard about with Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. I went and applied. And what was interestingly enough, one of the people that I interviewed with who was a young guy who was only a year older than me, I knew from the lacrosse world. And so that my lacrosse background absolutely helped me get the job. And that was my first job working for Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. I was a government bond and interest rate swap specialist. And I would say for the first six months, I don't even know what I was doing. <laughs> I, had to, I, had to learn, I had to learn on the fly what an interest rate swap specialist was. What is it? Basically, you're, you're swapping fixed interest rates for variable interest rates on large sums of money. So you, you're switching a variable mortgage for a fixed mortgage. That's the okay. easiest way to, to explain it. And you got a BA in organizational behavioral management, not in yeah. finance. I'm guessing you no. took a couple of finance classes. Sure. I mean, my the best way I can explain my major is, is basically like organizational behavioral management was business management. Okay. So did any of the coursework that you had taken at Brown come in handy when you had that first job or was it like... <laughs> It didn't matter what no, classes. Absolutely, absolutely, it did come into play. And I think one of the unique things about Brown is the open curriculum where you can basically create your own major and you can pick and choose what classes you take that make up your major. So my major, I took economics classes. I had accounting. I had biology in there. I had political science. I had history. I had philosophy. So all of those things, I think, made an impact on what I was going to be doing career-wise. So you stayed at Hong Kong, Shanghai for two years, and then you moved over to Merrill. And I believe your first title, at least the one that's on your resume, was VP, Senior Financial Consultant in Innovative Planning Services. And in that role, you were responsible for developing marketing strategies for financial consultants and assisted in establishing the National Network of accountants. What was the National Network of Accountants? National Network of Accountants was an organization, basically, when you're working in the finance world, your single best source of referrals are accountants. So what we want to do was create a network of accountants that we could have as referral sources and then surround those accountants with all of the necessary people that they that their clients would need. So anything from investment banking to mergers and acquisitions, to wills and trusts, to everyday banking needs, to mortgages, to financial consulting and investments. So that's what it was all about, was creating this network of accountants and, and developing a network for these accountants where we could be seen as a resource for them. But it didn't exist until you saw that gap, Dave. Can you Share with us how you identified the gap 
Well, I mean, it's one of the things I think is even today is accountants, they are the single best referral source. And so by far, when we're seeing that gap, if we could create our own network and not just have a one-off where you have these people who are truly professionals in their respective fields surrounding these accountants, well, then these accountants wouldn't have to go anywhere else for their business. And they would look to us as their own referral source. So when it came to someone needed to open up an account to have stocks, bonds, mutual funds, investments, pension planning, financial planning, whatever it may be, they would turn to us. But what I think is so fascinating is that you were probably like, what, 24, 25? Yeah, we were young. I was young at the time. I was involved with other people who were starting it who were much older than me, but I was directly involved from the beginning. I remember when you and I first chatted and you said you asked some questions, right? Didn't you say like, how are we cultivating these people? I I seem to remember it was along those lines. I mean, how did that, where was the thread that you started pulling on? Well, I mean, that was it, you know, getting back to who are your single best referral sources? I built my entire business at Merrill Lynch 100% through referrals. So I didn't cold call. I didn't mass market. I wasn't doing huge seminars and things like that. I was building it through a referral base. Is that unusual? I don't think it's as unusual today. I think in back in the day in Wall Street where you had the cold call cowboys who you just pick up a phone and dial for dollars. And I had no interest in ever doing that. I wanted people to refer me to people who realized that I was coming in there to do either a business financial plan or a personal financial plan on them. And as part of that, I would always make sure that I got the accountants and the attorneys directly involved. So one hand fed the other and they both washed the face. You said it wasn't that common back then. Where did the idea come from for you to say, I want to do this through referrals? It wasn't like you had family members who'd been in finance before. Was this from Mr. Watson who made this suggestion? Or no, was this- actually, it was, it, was, it, was from a, it was from another boss from Innovative Planning where it, it, it came from the whole referral system came from the life insurance business. Life insurance people developed a referral system. I looked at it. I said, this is something that I could do. It's something that works. And if it works and you just follow through on it, it's going to basically result in new clients. So I looked at it. I learned the system inside and out and I ran with it. And that's what I did. It wasn't a system that I created, but when I was at Merrill Lynch, I taught this system all throughout the entire country. Which is absolutely incredible. And during your time at Merrill and you were promoted to senior vice president, professional sales manager, and senior financial consultant, you actually achieved membership in the Merrill Lynch Circle of Excellence, the Chairman's Club, the President's Club, the Executive Club, and achieved one of the highest ratings within the country based on the recruiting that you did and the hiring you did of financial consultants. Yeah. Was that your sports competitive drive there? 100%. 100%. That's the competitive drive. And the nice thing about Merrill Lynch is that they made it easy for you to want to be competitive. You always knew where your numbers were. You knew where you were inside your office for your length of service. You knew where you were in your district and you knew where you were nationally. So if you wanted to be at the top of those national numbers, 
you knew exactly what you needed to do on a regular basis. And that was always a competitive thing for me where I wanted to be one of the tops in the country. We hear a lot, Dave, about the value of sports in helping to nurture the soft skills. And you touched on some of those a few minutes ago. Teamwork, leadership, coachability, coachability. That was the other big one. How did you see that play out in real time when you got into the corporate world? How did those skills give you an edge? Well, one of the first things that I did inside of Merrill Lynch was I basically created my own team. So I went back to the whole idea of having a team and having a team to play for, a team to compete with, where everyone's on the same side. So when I ended my career at Merrill Lynch, we had a significant team with, I think we had eight people on the team and everyone rowing, pushing, running all for the same goals. And that was how many people can we help on an annual basis? And that's what we looked at. How how many people can we help? And was this outside your division? How did you create this team? No, it was inside. Inside, it was a matter of finding other financial consultants who would fit into the team to make sure that what we had, that we were all aligned goal-wise, that we all had the same goals in mind. And that's how we created our team inside of Merrill Lynch. And was this something that was unusual? Because that sounds to me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, at the time, there weren't a lot of big teams. It was something that was relatively new that was going on. And you saw this. And now it's much more common inside of Merrill Lynch. What I was going to say is it sounds to me like part of what the function of whether it's a director or a VP that that's part of their job, right? To create that esprit de corps, to create a team. But was this something that you were coming at this from more of a sports approach than maybe business? I mean, how do you, how would I think you- it's a combination. It's a combination of the two. We knew that one thing is, is a team, we wanted to have the right support staff. So at the time we had three different executive assistants who were all part of our team, who were all helping us. And they were all licensed so they could take, they could take orders from clients, they could do trades and things like that. So we had a team that we built up from the bottom all the way up to different parts of Merrill Lynch that were actually part of our team. So trust and estate services. So they weren't physically in our office, but they were part of our team. So when someone looked at it, we looked at it as we were the quarterbacks of the team and what we were going to do alongside the client where we were, they were the team owner, we were the quarterback, and we were making sure that everything happened so that this team could run as efficiently as possible on their behalf. And is this the way that you talk to your colleagues? Like you would say, we're the QB and they're the, so you use that language. 100%. David, I would love for you to talk about how you took your experiences at Merrill, where you ended up logging nine years, including five of those years, as I mentioned, as a senior vice president, and then took all the subsequent experiences that you had in finance, whether it was at UBS Payne Weber or in private equity, VC, or at another financial services firm that you helped to co-found. And then in 2005, started pivoting back to your first love, back into the sports world. How did you leverage all of those transferable skills and experiences and make it work for you 
as a job and a moneymaker? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I, I always loved sports. So when I was doing everything that I had to do on Wall Street and making a career on Wall Street, the sports were kind of playing a backseat. My kids were young at the time. I was starting to coach them in sports and see them come up and through. I have three girls who all played sports and they played sports all through high school and college. So I started coaching them and started getting more involved in, in what they were doing. And really, when I was looking to make a shift into the sports world, something fell in my lap. And it's just one of those things where it's, you know, you have to be in the right spot at the right time. And it's something about opportunities that opportunities will present themselves, but you must be ready for the opportunity. And the opportunity that presented itself to me was something that I was going to absolutely love to do. And I got asked to be the interim president for the Long Island Lizards of Major League Lacrosse. So not only had I played in the league, but now I was being asked to become the president for one of the original six teams that started the league. It was a great opportunity for me to take the skills that I had learned in business, the passion that I had for sports, and putting that all together into one team. You mentioned that you began to think about leaving Merrill. There are plenty of people who end up working at Merrill their whole lives. What was it about you that kind of got you thinking, I want to move to something else? For me, it was a little bit of burnout, to be honest, because I was both a professional sales manager for Merrill Lynch, and I was a sales manager for the Long Island District, which was a big district. But I was also running my own book of business. So I was burning the candle at both ends, and it was tough. So I got a little burnt out. I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to just take a step back and say, well, maybe it's time for me to go out on my own and, and do my own thing. And that's exactly what I did. You founded Elevate Sports and Marketing as a consulting firm with a focus on sports and entertaining, and it includes revenue generation, marketing, capital funding, reorg, M&A, and you founded the Lacrosse Business Network. Why did you do that? And did you see it as a risk when you did that? Well, this gets back to Thomas Watson again. When I was at Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, I was thinking about going back to law school. Law school was something I had always thought about. I thought I would always be a good lawyer. Maybe I could get into becoming an agent as a lawyer. And it was something that I was thinking about. And at the time, I went back to Mr. Watson to get advice, and he said, come see me. And so I went up to his offices. He had a huge office with a huge desk, and he slid an envelope across the desk to me. And he said, go ahead, open that up. And I opened it up, and it was on his personal stationery, and it said, law school's paid for. Congratulations. And I was blown away. I was taken back. I, I didn't even know how to react. I said, I'm not sure what to say. And he said, say, thank you. It worked out well for you last time. So obviously I said, thank you. And he said, but this one has two strings attached. The two strings are you have to do this for some other kid down the road. And the other thing is you have to convince me on why you want to be an attorney. So I said, okay. And he said, go. And so I went into my spiel on why I wanted to be an attorney for about 10 minutes. And I finished and he said, give me the envelope back. And I gave him the envelope back and he said, you don't want to go to law school. You just don't want to work at Hong Kong Shanghai Bank anymore. And there's a big difference. When you love something, you run towards it. Don't run away from it. And so he said, you're running away from Wall Street right now. It's not like you're running towards 
becoming a lawyer. I think you need to find a better spot in finance where you're better fitted because being a lawyer, I don't really think is what you want to do. And now it really, it crushed me. It, it sent me on a high when he told me that it was paid for, but then it put me on a low and I was kind of walking out of his office with my tail between my legs. And he said, there are times when you're going to be on the ladder of life and you have no idea how to get up to the next rung. That's when you have to have faith. You have to let go of the ladder, reach up to the next rung. And when you reach up, someone's going to pull you up. And when that person pulls you up and you get up to the next rung, the next thing you do is you reach down below you and you pull someone else up from behind. And I said to him, I said, it's basically, it's this ladder of life that you're telling me. And it's that it's giving back. And that's the power of giving back. Sitting behind me, there's the 10th anniversary edition of Inside Lacrosse Magazine. And basically it's written about me. And the title of the article is Paying It Forward. And that's something that I've done my entire life is taking what Thomas Watson Jr. basically did for me. And I've been trying to do that every day of my life going forward. Yeah, I'm just looking at the additional section on your resume. CEO and founder of Team Elevate since 2008, volunteer as Santa Claus, former co-president of the Friends of Brown Lacrosse, interviewer for Brown University, head girls lacrosse coach, former board of directors, Long Island Metropolitan Lacrosse Foundation, and on and on and on. It's so interesting to me, Dave, that you look back on Mr. Watson's basically, I'm going to use a strong word here, but reneging, revoking the offer to pay for you to go to, to law school as having been a gift. Absolute gift. One of the best things he could have ever done for me. When you have a mentor that knows you and a mentor who is not afraid to tell you the truth, you hit gold. That's the thing. You don't want a yes person who's just going to basically appease you and tell you things because that's what you want to hear. And in his case, he told me something that I knew in the back of my head, but I just wasn't seeing it clear enough. It's interesting. Okay. You talk about the back of your head. Another place that we often get that feeling is in our gut, yeah. right? It's our intuition that is telling us something, but then we use our brains to try to talk ourselves out of it. And you were so fortunate to have Mr. Watson to basically send you packing. And is that what inspired you to found Elevate? Team Elevate is a girls travel lacrosse program that we've been running since 2008. And, and, it, and it wasn't something that we had any visions of saying, let's get into girls travel lacrosse. It was my daughter needed a team. She was playing for a travel team. It was very unorganized. It wasn't run well. So everyone asked me, said, listen, can you start a team? So we started with one team. And then two years later, we added our second team. And then we added a third team. And, and then we just kept on adding teams as we went. And we have some of the best players in the country playing who all came out of our program, who are now captains of their college teams. That's something that I love. It's a way to give back to that next generation and get them to use lacrosse as a tool to help them get into amazing colleges. So beautiful. And I'm really glad you told that story. I was actually alluding to the business, Elevate Sports and Marketing. Was that the 
inspiration then or just the kick in the pants you needed to no, found it? Was it was a little bit of inspiration. And, and I, I was saying to myself, I'm like, I love sports so much. How do I get into this? How do I start consulting? And my first consulting gig, that was really the, the big one, which kind of launched it was I got hired by Charles Wong, who was the CEO and chairman of the New York Islanders. But Charles Wong was also the founder of Computer Associates. And that's what he was really known for. And the Islanders, he bought the Islanders and took over the team. And he hired me as a consultant to come in and basically look at everything that they were doing, top-down approach, nothing to do with hockey, only to do with business. And that was my first big-time consulting gig that I had. And it was fantastic. And one of the things that you did while you were working for Mr. Wong was to develop the New York Islanders Business Club. And Another you grew networking it. group. There you go. You grew it to include over 400 companies. There is somebody I interviewed. It's actually almost a couple of years ago now. His name is Steve Rimland. He is not just an award winning, like platinum award winning musician, composer, songwriter, and serial entrepreneur. And he was a prodigy as a child in music and had someone at Yale University, he grew up in New Haven, say to him, who was a professor of music and was kind of tutoring Steve. He said, Steve, there are only 12 notes. It's how you arrange them that makes the music. Do you feel like that's what you've been doing? with your networking as you've moved through your career, just rearranging those notes? Yeah. I mean, it's just been a matter of, I think that's a great analogy, by the way, because it's just been taking different aspects. And even with National Network of Accountants, I could play a role in anything and anywhere. So within that mode of that networking, it was always a matter of no matter what networking you were doing, whether you were networking through Brown, networking through accountants, networking in the sports industry, it was always that network. And to me, all network is it's a giant team. It's one big team. So what is the sports business networks, which you founded in 2020? And what's its mission, Dave? To help as many student athletes as we can to basically navigate life. And I think one of the things that we're missing out, and it's something that I really would say is focused on Division One, Two, and Three athletes, not so much the club athletes. The Division One, Two, and Three athletes, their time is so tight with what they're able to accomplish. Because if you're playing a Division One, Two, or Three sport, you're not just playing it in your season. You're playing it out of season. So if we use lacrosse as an example, you're playing fall lacrosse. You're practicing as a team. You're competing as a team. You're going to the weight room. You're doing all the things that you need to do. So a lot of these kids, their time is so tight. They don't, they aren't able to do the internship opportunities and things like that, that some of the other kids are able to do. So I want to help these kids navigate and find other people that want to hire athletes. When I was at Merrill Lynch, I basically almost exclusively hired athletes because I knew the qualities that they would be bringing to the table. And those same qualities I mentioned before, being on time, hard work ethic, being a team player, being coachable, all those things that you learn on the field that you're going to bring to the team, your new team at the workplace. So all those things that we were able to accomplish 
athletically, we're able to bring to the business side of it as well. And I think that's one of the things that if we could help these student athletes find jobs, find internships, understand that they have these qualities that companies are looking for. And we wrote a great piece that we actually, we send out to HR directors all the time on why athletes make the best hires. And we've taken great studies in there. Ernst & Young with Sports Illustrated did a study a few years ago on women CEOs and women C-suite executives. And they found that over 60% of C-suite executives all played a team sport. That's, and that's incredible. Just I only played a club sport, <laughs> but it was rugby and we are pretty badass. Let me tell you. And I would tell you, the, the, but, but that's a different thing too, because when you were playing rugby, some of the schools didn't have rugby as a sport for their school. So you had to play club. I know at Brown, the women's rugby team wasn't an official team. They were a club team, but they practiced every day, just like we did. And they worked as hard as they could. And, and I remember one time at practice, I was watching a, a women's rugby scrimmage right next to us. And I saw one of the hardest hits I've ever seen. And my coach happened to be standing next to me. And I looked at him, I go, did you just see that? And he goes, yeah, we should, we should get her and sign her up for our team. I think one of the reasons why I've had issues with my brain over the years is because of all the concussions I got. Not, not pretty. Dave, I try to ask all my guests to share a time in their professional life mm -hmm. when they struggled. And this is less about what it was and more about how you got through that experience and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Oh, God. For me, you know, you have your highs, you have your lows. And in my case, I've had plenty of lows. And one of my lowest is when I found out that one of my really close friends and business partner was basically a crook. And when I, when I uncovered it and found out that all this money that we had been investing side by side was gone, and this was someone who was one of my best friends and literally took me to the cleaners. And it was a hard thing to overcome. But one of the hardest things I had to overcome was we had other investors and we needed to make sure that those other investors were taken care of. And that's a tough decision when you have to basically say, do you want to be known as a co-conspirator or do you want to be known as the person who made things right? And I wanted to be known as the person who made things right. So I went on the hook for all of it and had to overcome a lot of personal financial battles to basically make sure that everyone was taken care of. And how long did it take? A long time. A long time, close to a decade. Oh my God, Dave. So, but you know, what do I learn out of that? The things that I learned were if that, if those things didn't happen, I would have never created Elevate and I would have never gone to the Lizards and had that experience of being three years of being the president of the Lizards and getting them their first ever TV contract and things like that. Those things wouldn't have happened. So I always take it as things are meant to happen for a reason. And that's how I looked at it. it. It was not a great time to go through. It was really hard financially on myself and my family, but made it through. What an incredible story. Final question, Dave. If you could go back to Brown and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom that you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? The one thing I would probably do because the advice I would give myself would be you belong because 
For the first few years at Brown, I didn't feel I belonged because I was nervous about being in the classroom with some of the smartest kids in the world. And it was one day in a class answering a question that a professor had. And I, I literally said, wow, I belong here. I'm one of the smartest kids too. And the one thing I would have done is having a different impact is I probably would have loved to have gone and had real internships, worked on Wall Street and had an internship that taught me the ins and out of Wall Street. Because like I said, I was either cleaning pools, working on a garbage truck or working construction. That's what I knew. But I wouldn't change those things because when you're working on a garbage truck, you know what it's like to, to do hard work. And especially when you're the only person on the back of the garbage truck and you're picking up both sides of the street. So having that experience of picking up other people's garbage. And I made a lot of money while I was doing it. So for me, I was never afraid of hard work, but I would like to have taken the opportunities that a Brown University would have presented itself with and used that a little more for internship opportunities and things like that. That's the only thing I probably would have done differently. David is the host of a weekly show on SBN called The Speaker Series. Dave, where can our listeners find SBN? The easiest way to find us is on LinkedIn. If you, if you go on LinkedIn and you look up Sports Business Networks, that's the easiest place to find us. We post all our interviews on LinkedIn. That's, that's a central spot for us. So that's the easiest place. Or you can go to sportsbusinessnetwork.com and that's a, another easy spot. But LinkedIn is the best place to connect. David, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the Tea for C community. I only community. have a little bit left, Andrea. There's, there's not much left. I know. I saw you swigging it throughout the interview. This was just fantastic. Well, thank you. This has been fun. I love giving back. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.